So how would you define truth? <clears throat> Somebody define truth for me. I know you guys like to talk. Come on. God's word contains the truth. It is truth from beginning to end, right? How else? What is? What is? What is? <clears throat> Easton's dictionary, Bible dictionary, says truth is usually applied to that which conforms to reality and thus is factual, accurate, historical, and reliable. And we as believers certainly are expected to stand for the truth, are we not? Vine's Expository Dictionary defines the Greek word that's translated in the passage we're going to look at. Um, if I'll probably butcher the pronunciation, but I'll go ahead and try. Alathea. It's used objectively signifying the reality lying at the basis of an appearance, the manifested essential matter, especially of Christian doctrine, where the truth of the gospel denotes the true teaching of the gospel in contrast to attempts to pervert it. So we as believers want to honor, want to stand for, want to teach, and want to live in that particular truth. It's very interesting that in John chapter 18, in verse 38, in response to Jesus mentioning truth in verse 37, Pilate responds in a cynical way with, what is truth? With truth staring him in the face, he says, what is truth? But his question actually reflects very well our society today, doesn't it? What is truth? Can we even know truth? Those in our society would say, in our postmodern and even now, I, I believe, post-Christian culture, um, those in the know are very skeptical of anyone that says there is absolute truth or believes absolute truth. Even if they would agree that absolute truth might exist, they would say, we really can't know it. We really can't know the truth. But how do we answer that as Christians? Yes, there is absolute truth. There is divine truth, and we can know this divine truth. We actually learn from God's Word several times in the Psalms and several times in the Proverbs that truth is a precious commodity, that when we find it, we are to hold on to it at all costs. The writer of Proverbs even says in uh, Proverbs twenty-three twenty-three, we are to buy truth and not sell it. We are to hold on to truth at all costs when we, when we find it. And ultimately, truth is God's truth, right? And God's revealed truth to us in his word is probably the most precious commodity we have, isn't it? We can study this and learn this and use this. The writer of Hebrews, do you know what the writer of Hebrews calls this? It's a two-edged sword that does what? It cuts. The Greek word for cut there is lay bare. It lays bare your soul to expose what you are or what you're not. <clears throat> if you were to do just a simple concordance search, whether you pick up a Bible that has a concordance in the back of it like this one, or you use a software like I have Logos software, and you type in the words truth, truthfulness, or truths, the result is a very, very long list. You do that. Here's just a sampling of 
when I did that. The Bible is called the Word of Truth. God is called the God of Truth. Christ is called Truth. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. God's truth is said to be eternal. Salvation comes by faith in the truth. Believers are sanctified by the truth. They love the truth. They're set free by the truth. They worship in truth. They rejoice in truth. They obey the truth. And ultimately, they walk in the truth. And that's just a sampling of the long list that I saw with those. But where do we currently exist today? What kind of environment that we exist in today? Well, post-truth, that's very good, post-truth. <clears throat> we live in a, in a world, or a world system, a better way to put it. We live in a world system governed by who? By Satan at the moment. For, for God's own purpose, he has allowed Satan to have a certain level of rule, if you want to call it that. What does the Bible call Satan? What's one of the titles the Bible gives Satan? The father of lies. That's out of uh, John eight forty four. Uh, the father of lies. So for a time being, the Lord, for his own purposes and in his providence, is allowing Satan to influence this world or world system with his lies. <clears throat> As followers of Christ, we have to be committed to the truth because Satan is doing his best to corrupt the truth. Peter says he's what, a roaring lion that's moving to and fro, trying to do what? To devour the truth. So we have to be committed to the truth because of that. He is attempting to um, lead, certainly, sinners, non-believers astray, but he's also attempting to influence us as believers with, with everything he possibly can to deny the truth. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth that Satan is the god of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And that's out of 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And Jeremiah spoke of the condition of man in uh, Jeremiah 9, 5, saying, Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies. Paul warns Timothy, or reminds Timothy, that unbelievers are men depra of depraved mind and depraved of truth, who oppose the truth and who turn away their ears from the truth. Paul teaches in Romans what the reason for that is. Does anybody know what Paul teaches about man in Romans? Chapter uh, 1, verse 25, the very beginning. First three chapters where he explains why everybody's sinners. What, what does man do with the truth? Even though we know it, we reject it and we deny it. <clears throat> Paul says we actually exchange. We as before Christ, we exchange the truth of God for what? A lie. That's the condition of, the, of us before Christ. That's the condition of all of those who are not believers. In a world of lies, the church is actually called to be a pillar or a support of the truth. And we make up the church, do we not? The church is not a building. The church is made up of 
true followers of Jesus Christ, and we, the church, are called to actually be a pillar and a support of the truth. So our mission must be one of an immovable, unshakable desire to live the truth, to uphold the truth, to guard the truth, and to proclaim the truth. That's what we, every one of us, is not just the pastor that stands up to teach. It's not just the individual Bible teachers that you sit under. It's every one of us. If you indeed are a member of the body of Christ, that is your mission. That is my mission, to uphold, to defend, and to proclaim the truth. And we have to proclaim the entire counsel of God. We can't pick and choose the parts of the truth that might be inoffensive to our society, can we? We have to teach it all and not overlook those things. One commentator that I read said that any so-called church that fails to exercise its stewardship of his truth faces God's judgment just as the Jews did for failing to uphold and live the Old Testament truths entrusted to them. So this morning I want to take a little bit of time and talk about what truth is. We're going to look at a passage out of 2 John, a very short epistle that John wrote shortly after he wrote 1 John. It's very interesting that if you look at the last three epistles that were written, the last three short letters that were written prior to the apocalyptic literature of Revelation, all three of them deal with Truth or contending for the truth. <clears throat> in Second and Third John, the uh, emphasis is on the priority of truth. And then in Jude, the emphasis on contending. And it's interesting, in the introduction to Jude, the word he uses for contend actually means fight. To fight for the truth. So the last three letters that we have in our Bible prior to the apocalyptic literature actually command us to uphold and to defend the truth of God's word. <clears throat> John wrote 2nd and 3rd John, both barely long enough to be called a letter. As a matter of fact, one commentator I read said, it's barely a postcard. These two letters are barely postcards. And they are very short. I believe um, 18 verses in 2nd uh, in in John, rather. And he, but he writes these two letters to stress the truth. And we've already mentioned the Greek word there is uh, alatheia. He uses it five times in the first four verses of 2 John, and he uses it six times in 3 John. Writing, obviously recognizing that his readers then and us now are going to be faced with uh, a society with teachers, with false teachers, that deny the truth or want to twist or pervert the truth. And it's a call for us to defend the truth. It's a call for us to stand on the truth. Ultimately, it's a call for us to live out this truth. Dr. MacArthur, in his commentary on 2 John, points to several features of what he calls living in the truth. He titles this section of his commentary, Living in the Truth. <clears throat> several features that are just in the first four verses he says the first one is the truth unites us. The second one is the truth indwells us. The third one is the truth blesses us. 
The fourth is the truth controls us. And then ultimately, we are to love in the truth. And so that's the framework we're going to use this morning to take a look at this short section of um, 2 John. Would someone like to read for us 2 John verses 1 to 4? How loud? Second John one through four. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. So the first one of these points is the truth unites believers. John starts this short letter out with, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who know the truth. So he's beginning out with a unity between this lady or the church he's writing to, himself and the other believers who know the truth. He wrote this letter when he was an older man, probably the last living apostle at the time he wrote the letter. And he identifies himself as as the elder, not as an elder. But he's primarily talking about his position in the body, not his age, even though he was older. He's referring to to himself as the elder. And it really buttresses the fact that John wrote this letter. If somebody trying to impersonate John wrote it, they would have used an an Apostle John. But John didn't need to use the title of Apostle because he's writing to a church that he had pastored, more than likely. And so they would have known who he was, and they would have accepted him as their elder, as their teacher, as their their pastor. He probably writes this letter, a very, very short letter, as a follow-up to what he'd written in, in 1 John, five chapters of 1 John that that really talk about the centrality of Christ and combat false teaching, probably early Gnosticism, throughout 1 John. So he's writing this as a brief follow-up out of concerns that he has over their use of hospitality in in an incorrect way. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Repeating several of the same points that he made in, in 1 John. If you have read 1 John, you might be familiar with 1 John 2.19, where John says, they went out from us because they were not of us. And he's talking specifically about the false teachers that had infiltrated the church, and then when challenged by believers in the church, they took their teachings and left. So apparently, um, these false teachers had now become itinerant teachers, going around from town to town and church to church, attempting to take their false teaching and infiltrate the church. particularly the smaller churches. One commentator thinks that this, this elect lady may have been a, uh, a lady that hosted a house church in her home. You know, there's three different views on it. It was actually a lady, it was a church, or it was the church universal. Uh, but what John is writing here and his admonition applies the same way to all three categories. Whether it was an individual that would host a church in her home, 
that may host one of these false teachers even in her home, whether it was a local body of believers or the church universal, John would expect the same reaction, the same belief and the same behavior out of an individual, a small church or the church universal when it came to accepting these false teachers in, into their midst. Apparently what they would be doing is trying to pose as godly teachers, showing you a better way to know Christ outside of what they were taught out of the scriptures. A higher knowledge, it would be an, an early form of Gnosticism from the Greek word to know, uh, Greek word is gnosis. Um, they were beginning to teach, and that, that teaching is actually still alive and well today, that there's a better mystical way of knowing Christ, of knowing God, um, aside from what you were taught in the scriptures. But the application of John's letter is the same, regardless of who uh, he actually addressed it to. The term elect, what, what would we take away from the term elect? Chosen. It's basically what the Greek word means. Either chosen or to, to make a choice. And so it's going to describe someone that was selected by God for eternal glory. John's description of this woman or this church and her sisters, if you go on to verse 13, that would probably be a sister congregation. Um, as chosen reflects the biblical truth that God is sovereign in his choices of believers for salvation. He goes on to describe this elect lady and her children as, them, as those whom I love. And it's a description that really, um, in the Greek, points to a personal love. He has a personal love for this group of people he's writing to. What kind of love do you think he's, he's meaning here? Go ahead and say it out loud. Yeah, agape, or the, the actual word is agapo, which is the um, a verb form of agape. What kind of love is that? Sacrificial love. It's not a sensual love. It's not even a familial love. It's not a friendly love. It is a sacrificial love. Um, it, it points to um, a love that is a spiritual devotion, willing to put your needs and um, life above my own, if I'm loving you that way. And we as believers are all commanded to love each other that way. I had a teacher when we were in Florida say, as a follower of Christ, you do not have a right to not love other believers. You may not like me. Sometimes I'm not likable. But you don't have a right not to love me. Even in that way, even in that sacrificial way, that's how we are to love each other. We are to lay our lives down for one another. When you look in the, in the New Testament and talk about uh, prison ministry in the New Testament, we often think about prison ministry as we go and we talk to and we try to help care for those in the prisons. When the Gospels and Acts talk about going to the prisons, in a New Testament era prison, if you went to prison, you would not be cared for, you would not be clothed, you would not be fed unless a family member or a friend brought you clothing and food. 
no TV sets, no Wi-Fi, no Internet, uh, no play yards, no nothing like that. And by if, if you especially were imprisoned for your Christian beliefs, I would be risking my life to come bring you food and clothing because I would then be identifying with you as a believer. And that's the kind of sacrificial love that John is talking about here. But he adds to that love in truth. He's not saying, I really, really, really love you. He's saying, I love you in this sacrificial way because of the truth that we all adhere to. I love you as a fellow believer because of this truth. And it's a truth that that binds us together. Not only John to them, but also them to all other believers. So John loves them in truth as well as the other believers he's pointing to loves them in truth. And this is essentially the main theme of this letter, that we love each other and we love each other in truth and we love each other enough that we actually tell each other the truth, that we don't withhold the truth from someone because we love them. It's a love that flows out of the fact that we follow Christ. It's a love that flows out of our shared commitment to Christ. John wrote in his first epistle in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So if all of us in here believe that Jesus is the Christ, we are born of God. He continues on to say, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. And that's where that preacher got his admonition to me when he was teaching me that I don't have a right not to love you. If I believe Jesus is God, is God the Son, that he indeed comes from the Father, I love the Father. If I love the Father, I also have to love all of his children. I don't have a right not to love all of his children. However, many today, even in what would be the visible church, not the invisible true church, would say that truth is harsh. Teaching the truth is unloving. We need to just love people. John links truth and love together. I can't truly love you unless I'm loving you in that truth. If you're professing to be a believer, if I'm professing to be a believer... We are to speak the truth, but we're just speaking in love, right? I can't conceal the truth because I want to love you. If I love you, I'm going to actually speak the truth. One commentator said that God's purposes will never be accomplished by compromising the truth. God's purposes will never be, compromised, never be accomplished by compromising the truth. A love for the lost will never be manifested by minimizing the truth. The truth must be spoken in love. So we as a body of believers are unified around both love and truth. The second of of, uh, John's points is the fact that truth indwells us. At the point of salvation, the truth of God indwells you because we are indwelt by the Spirit. 
He adds to, in, in the second verse, he adds to whom I love in truth, the statement, because of the truth that abides in us. And so that's the reason now that we love each other because the truth abides in us. So what does abide or abide in mean? Say again. Dwell. dwell. What else? Remain. Remain. So to dwell, the truth indwells us, and we remain in the truth. And that's the two essential meanings of the Greek word uh, called meno. I think I pronounced that right. The actual meaning of the word means to continue in, to remain in, or reside in. It's one of John's favorite words. He uses it 60 times through the Gospel of John and his three uh, epistles. Dr. MacArthur points out that he uses it in multiple ways. He uses it first in a theological sense to refer to the truth that resides in us, the truth of the Gospel that resides in us. He says that true believers abide in the Word. The Spirit abides in believers. And most significantly, we are to abide in Christ. And then the best part, when the truth of the word abides in believers forever, it gives us the mind of Christ. Yes, sir. Similar concept. Similar concept. The walk is a pattern by which I demonstrate I'm abiding. Yeah, so it's a similar concept, but they're, they're, two, they're two things that go together. And John uses that a lot, especially in 1 John, um, about walking. And, and walk, walk really means what's the pattern of your life? What do you do day in and day out? You know, there may be a moment, and I, I like to say that you could follow me around with a still camera, and you could catch snapshots of me not walking right in Christ. But if you took a video, a, 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 an end-to-end video, you should see evidence in my life that I walk, that the pattern of my life fits what I claim and that I believe. Thanks for that point. Very good. Um, the last part, though, I think is the most important part. If, if the word abides in us, we have the mind of Christ. Stop for just a moment and think about that. If the word abides in us and we abide in Christ, we have the mind of Christ. What's that mean? Say again. Christ lives through us. Christ lives through us. That's one, one way to look at it. How, how do I come to understand the mind of Christ? Yes, sir. The Spirit indwells me and I study this. And the Spirit then illuminates this to my mind. And if I understand this through the study and through the illumination of the Spirit, then I indeed have the mind of Christ. This represents the mind of Christ. These are the words of Christ, are they not? From cover to cover, these are the words of Christ. Every single one of them is to be believed and to live out. Yes, ma'am. If we, are, if we have a rightly informed mind, yes. Um, we have a conscience, right? Our conscience can lead us ways, right? 
we need to inform our conscience. We make our decisions based on biblical information, right? And that's every decision I make every day. Should be informed by this word. So I should have an inform. That's how I can have the mind of Christ. It's informed by the very words of the very words of Christ. This really should should bring us, to me at least, it does a great assurance, a great assurance that all of these things. If I indeed am a follower of Christ, if I indeed am abiding in the Word, and the Word is abiding in me, that the profession I've made, the commitment I've made, we all know that Christ had to uh, do what I like to call open heart surgery, pull out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh, before I could do any of this. But the thing that I have entrusted my soul to by believing the gospel message, that is just as alive and enduring as Christ himself. This message that I believe, that I believed when God saved me, that I believe today that I stand here and am attempting in my feebleness to teach you, rises out of this, and it's alive and well, it's as alive and well as Jesus is. It impacts my life. It drives everything I do. Whether it's standing here or whether it's at work, when I go to work tomorrow, it drives everything I do. I live out this, this truth. And John's writing this short letter because of that truth, because of that truth that abides in us, that abided in the lady or the church that he wrote to, warning them not to compromise the truth for the sake of hospitality. Now, we as believers are supposed to be hospitable, aren't we? We're supposed to demonstrate our love by our caring for one another. Hospitality, love, Christian fellowship, all of those things are indeed manifestations of the Spirit within us, aren't they? But we have to be careful how we apply them to someone we don't know or to someone that is teaching a false gospel. And that's John's point here is these itinerant teachers that are going around now are spreading a false gospel. They're not teaching the truth. They are teaching lies. Because we share a love that flows out of our common eternal life um, and true commitment to each other rises from that love, our teaching, our preaching, our evangelism, our hospitality, everything that we do must be permeated by this truth without compromise. So I can't allow someone that's teaching false doctrine to remain. Now, do I, do I just reject them and throw them out? No, I teach, the lo- I teach in love the truth to them. I attempt in love to teach the truth to them. But if they won't accept the truth, that's not my responsibility, is it? My responsibility, first and foremost, is to not allow them to teach false teaching. It would be like allowing um, somebody like a Benny Hinn or a Joel Osteen to come preach from our pulpit. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Because our job, all of us, not just the elders of this church, all of us are responsible to make sure that we don't listen to the false teachers. John said in his first epistle... 
that I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. We can know the truth because Christ abides in us and we have been given the truth. We can know the truth. The Spirit illuminates our mind to the truth. It's not something that we're left without. Yes, it requires study. Yes, it requires time. It requires a commitment. But we can know the truth. We can stand on the truth. The third point John makes is the fact that truth blesses us. He says in verse 3, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Now these three words, grace, mercy, and peace, were actually a common greeting. But they seldom were put all three together in one letter. As a matter of fact, this only occurred three times in the New Testament, where all three of these words were put together. It's here in Second John and in the opening uh, verse of First Timothy and the opening verse of Second Timothy. Uh, Westcott, in his commentary <clears throat> about these three words, says that the succession of these three, grace, mercy, and peace, marks the order from the first motion of God to the final sanctification of man. MacArthur adds that they summarize the progression of the, of the plan of salvation. God begins with his grace. And that grace causes him to grant us mercy. And his grace and his mercy then result in peace in our lives. Grace, peace, and mercy to you if you are a follower of Christ. Paul puts it in Romans 5, 6, For while we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's God's grace followed by his mercy that leads to peace in our lives. What, what do we normally call grace? Unmerited favor. We don't merit anything the Lord gives us, do we? How about mercy? How would we define mercy? Yeah. Not giving us what we deserve. I heard somebody say, you shouldn't pray for justice because you don't want God's justice. You want his mercy. Because if I got God's justice, I'd be in hell right now. If I got his justice. Thankfully, I get his mercy. And how about peace? What does peace in this context say to you? Bruce, you look like you want to say something. Exactly. We, we were, prior to Christ, we were at enmity with God. We aren't anymore. And he's the one that made peace with us. We didn't make peace with, with him. So John wants his readers and obviously us to appreciate, to understand the importance of guarding that truth. The truth of the gospel. <clears throat> and in practicing love toward one another. <clears throat> These two things are actually the basis for this grace, mercy, and peace. All of these qualities can only flourish. Grace, mercy, and peace can only flourish where truth and love prevail. What happens when we try to separate truth and love? 
We're not going to be able to do both. I heard somebody say, you're going to have a train wreck. You're going to have a train wreck when you try to do that. Because you cannot have, you can't live in the truth without love, and you can't love without the truth. When we attempt to separate truth from love, it becomes nothing but sentimentality. It really, then it really doesn't embody the truth anymore when I do that. If I truly love you, if you truly love me, you need to tell me the truth. Do it in love, but you need to tell me the truth. I need to tell you the truth. <clears throat> Without God's truth, we're nothing. Without expressing it in love, we're a sounding gong. And the last point here, uh, really this is the opening of the body of the letter. John, John says the truth actually controls us. The truth controls us. He says in verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. This should, be a, should have been a great encouragement to either the lady, if it was just written to an individual lady, that her children are walking in the truth, or to a body of believers that John is seeing that many within that body are walking in the truth. doesn't mean that all of them aren't walking in the truth, but it means he has witnessed some um, or heard very good testimony that some of these people are now walking in the truth. And that certainly shouldn't surprise us that John would, would make that kind of comment with his commitment to the truth. And we kind of already... Um, when Eric brought up um, walking, walking in the truth really leads to obedience or a means obedience. I'm walking in obedience to the truth when I'm walking in truth. It means I'm going to allow the truth to control every aspect of my life. Everything I do, everything I say should be controlled by this truth if I'm indeed walking in the truth. You know, it's, it's really easy to study the truth, isn't it? I can become a scholar, and I can know everything this thing says. But if I don't ever tell anybody about it, how am I loving anybody? I can even tell people about it, but do it in such a way that I'm actually sinning. You know, I can't go about beating somebody over the head and shoulders with this. I'm supposed to express the truth of this in love. I'm supposed to learn it, I'm supposed to live it, and I'm supposed to express it. But I do all of that in love. If I don't, as we already mentioned, that I'm nothing but a a sounding gong. In the context, this particular phrase, walking in truth, refers to genuine believers who are indeed holding fast to the apostolic teaching they've been given. And apparently this body that John wrote to is a body he taught. And so he's pointing to them as walking in the truth he has taught them, walking in the apostolic teachings, particularly in the face of false teaching. They're continuing to stand for the truth in the midst of people trying to twist and attack the truth. It's uh, equivalent to walking in the light that John referred to in his first epistle, 1 John 1, 7, or in um, 1 John 2, 6, he says, we are to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. 
And then in 2 John 6, if we were to keep reading, he would say we are to walk according to the commands that we've been given. John really is pointing to this truth as a commandment. You know, he said in the, in the last part of verse 4, just as we were commanded by the Father. And he's not pointing to one commandment. He's pointing to the commands of God. Christ said, you will demonstrate your love for me by doing what? By obeying my commands. What commands is he talking about? The Ten Commandments? Everything he taught. Everything he taught, from cover to cover, everything he taught, we are to obey. Now, there are particular passages, particularly in the Old Testament, that still apply to the Jew only. But everything in the New Testament applies to us. Everything. And so many things in the Old apply to us. This is the command that came from the Father, that we are to obey. To walk in the truth is not a reference of just one command, but it reflects the general and obvious mandate of Scripture to obey what we're taught out of Scripture. In Psalm 19.8, the Scripture is actually called the commandment of the Lord. So obedience to God's truth, is that optional for us? No, it's not an option for us. If we are true followers of Jesus Christ, it is not an option for us to pick and choose what of these things we obey. John Stott, in talking about truth, writes or wrote... Uh, God has not revealed his truth in such a way as to leave us free at our pleasure to believe or disbelieve it, to obey or disobey it. Revelation carries with it responsibility, and the clearer the revelation, the greater responsibility to believe and obey. Let that sink in for just a moment. The greater the revelation, the clearer the revelation carries with it a greater responsibility to believe and obey. We have very good translations of God's word that are very easy to read and study and understand. We don't have an excuse. We don't have an excuse for not obeying the commands that God has given to us. So John is really warning. We can't separate love from truth. I can't say I'm going to love somebody and show hospitality to them, but yet covering up or not exposing the fact that they're not teaching the truth or holding to the truth. Unfortunately, in our day, even within the visible church, there are those that allow false teaching in their doors, that allow music that teaches false teaching within their doors. We as believers have to watch out for these appeals to some advanced way of knowing God, to some advanced spiritual truth that's not confirmed in this. If you hear something from somebody, test it in this. If it doesn't stand up to this, reject it, because it's not the truth. We must not encourage anybody teaching anything false in their work, but reach out to them in love. Years ago, I actually heard somebody say that really, really, It doesn't matter exactly what you believe as long as we love each other. Is that a valid statement? No. No, that is not. John would be crying, no, 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 and we need to do the same thing. That no. It it does matter what you believe. 
if you have the wrong belief, you have the wrong Jesus. If you have incorrect doctrine, you have incorrect belief. Out of your beliefs and your doctrine will rise your practice. So you have to have the right belief. You have to have the right Christ. Yes, sir. <clears throat> That's what, that's what these teachers are doing. They're adding to, um, if you take a look at the beginning of 1 John, John spends several verses in the very beginning talking about, actually let me turn to and read it. Turn to 1 John. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> let's see. Where I want to start. We'll start in verse 1. First John, verse 1. Uh, chapter 1, I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, he says, uh, That which we heard from the beginning, was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. John is speaking to first the physicality of Christ. Because these false teachers and those who adhere to a Gnostic theology believe that Christ did not appear physically. That he was in spirit. And that he didn't rise bodily. So John is saying, we saw with our own eyes. We looked upon, meaning we stared at intently this physical man who was the God-man. He said that we have handled him, we have touched him, we have heard him. So he's proclaiming that Christ's physicality, and then he goes on throughout 1 John talking about the things that Christ taught, the fact that Christ is an advocate, refuting all of the things that Gnosticism of today would teach, and apparently what was being taught then. So that's what he's meaning in 2 John, Eric, as he continues on there is, if you follow these things, because they're adding to and they're taking away from. What, what does the scripture say about me if I try to do that? If I try to take away or add to? I'm going to face the curses found in this thing. Because I can't do that. It's complete. The canon is, the canon is complete. Thanks, Eric. So truth unites the Christian community when it faces a common foe of, of falsehood. <clears throat> it is evident among us as believers that we have to demonstrate our unity by showing love to one another, but that love must be shown in truth. The only true basis for unity in the church comes from the truth of God's word that indwells, blesses, 
and controls the lives of individual believers. It's only when we, as individual believers, because we make up the church, it's only when us in the church hold firmly to that solid foundation of the truth and we practice that truth in love, despite the storms that are coming, despite the persecution they were facing, because John writes this in the midst of persecution. Uh, and uh, Jude, as we mentioned earlier in the, in the lesson, Jude, they were there. They were being persecuted for what they believed. Uh, and if you look at Second Peter, same thing. The, the believers there were being persecuted for their beliefs. But we must withstand these storms, the temptation, because it's easy, it feels easy, just to say, let's go along to get along. But we can't do that. We have to stand in the truth, despite what comes and assails us. Questions? Comments? Well, thanks for your attention. Appreciate it. And uh, Joel will be back next week.